Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a very special two-part series of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. We are so blessed to cap off our 299th and 300th episodes of Ignite Radio Live with a two-part series featuring none other than John Michael Talbot. Drawing from the very heart of his tremendous anointing in music writing, speaking, and leading, we're theming these episodes Light of the World. In tonight's program, we feature John Michael's real fun and very moving testimony of his personal conversion to Jesus Christ and into the fullness of our Catholic faith, taken from a talk given in Texas. In part two, episode 300, we'll interview John Michael, asking him to be real and direct. How are we called right now to be God's light to the world? For any of you who haven't been attuned to Christian music or books for the past, oh, half century... (laughs) John Michael Talbot is a multi-platinum-selling, Grammy and Dove award-winning contemporary Catholic Christian music pioneer. He recorded his 56th album, Songs from Solitude, during the COVID-19 quarantine. John Michael is a best-selling author, his 33rd book, Exploring the Gifts of the Spirit, Discovering the Power God Has for You, was published in May of 2020. John Michael lives and leads the monastic life, which overflows into his very active ministry from Little Portion Hermitage in Arkansas and St. Clair Monastery in Texas, where he is the founder and general minister of the Catholic-based community, the Brothers and Sisters of Charity. With no further ado, let's begin with episode one of this two-part series, Light of the World, with John Michael Talbot. You can hear this okay? Well, let's start with something kind of up-tempo, and then we'll get into some more kind of quiet, worshipful stuff. Woo, that was a mess. Hey, there's Father George in the back. Hey, there he is. Hey. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Now we sing this at the Little Portion Hermitage up in Arkansas at every Easter vigil. And uh, we raise the roof. I didn't bring them with me tonight. Uh, So you're going to have to be the choir. You think you can do that? You know, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus becomes a living reality in our life. That his relationship with us becomes personal, something more than just a good religious idea or philosophy. So let's ask for the Holy Spirit to anoint us at the beginning of this mission. And let's ask that it begin with each one of us personally, personally. So you ready? Lord, send forth your spirit face of the earth. Let's try it. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Now, I know you're just learning it, but I must share with you in all candor and honesty and transparency. Remember Obama's White House? 
that you sound exceedingly um, Catholic. <laughs> so I'm going to ask all of the non-Catholics here who raised their hand to help us out a little bit. Show us how to sing. Okay, here we go. Let's try it again. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Great. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Great. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. You are great indeed. Clothed with light and majesty, clothed with light and glory. You fix the earth on foundations, never more to be moved. As with a cloak you covered her, above the water stood. Lift your voice. Send forth your spirit and renew the face of the Spirit and renew the face of the earth. How manifold are all your works, O oh Lord. In wisdom you brought them forth. The earth is full of your creatures, Lord. Bless the Lord, my soul. Sing it out. Your spirit and renew the face of the earth once more. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Lord, send forth your spirit and renew. Renew, renew. Give the Lord a hand. Amen. Here's one you might know. It's in some of the missalettes. Come, worship the Lord, for we are His people, the flock that He shepherds. beginning of the liturgy of the hours each morning, either Psalm 95 or Psalm 100. You know, every morning, the older I get, I have more aches and pains when I wake up. And every morning I have a choice. I can either wake up and go, oh God. <laughs> or I can go, oh God. Same words, totally different meaning. See, that's the way liturgy is too. Well, we say the same words, but they can mean different things important to make every day a day of praise, a day of gratitude. 
I just was reading in the life of St. Anthony of the Desert, the father of monks, not St. Anthony of Padua, but St. Anthony of the Desert, that he had a joyful spirit, therefore his body was always healthy. And he lived to be 120 years old. Wow. So let's sing again. Lift your voice. Come, worship the Lord. Lift your voice. For we are His people, the flock that He shepherds. Alleluia. Great. Once more now. Come, worship the Lord, for we are His people, the flock that He shepherds. Alleluia. Once more. Alleluia. One last time. Now you can be seated. You all are so funny. You know, there's, there's always a couple of guys, never the girls, it's never the women, it's always the guys. It's like, show me, prove it. Yeah. And you know, there's a little nun I knew over in, in Louisiana and she used to say, so. she says, John, is Jesus in your heart? I'd say, yes. She'd go, please inform your face. See, scientists have proven that when you smile, you start feeling good. It releases endorphins into your brain, just like chocolate and stuff. Yeah. And even if you're having a miserable time, if you smile, you'll fake yourself out and you'll think you're having a good time. So the trick is, next time you go to a bad liturgy, smile. <laughs> you can think it's great. trouble you and let nothing frighten you for everything passes but God will never change patient in God alone is 
of Avila. I'm going to ask you to sit, put your feet flat on the floor, rest your hands out on your laps with your palms turned up. You notice you have to let go of anything you're hanging on to to do this. And if we let go of everything, God will give us everything we need in His way. See? If we let go of everything, as Saint, or not Saint, but Evagrius Ponticus said, renounce all to gain everything. It's not so much that things are wrong, it's that we use things wrongly. It's not so much that relationships are wrong, but we often do them wrongly. It's not so much that we're wrong, God created us, but we do a bad version of ourselves, don't we? Because we keep trying to do us our way and not God's way. So sing with me, God alone is enough. God alone is enough. Whoever has God wants for nothing at all. Try it. God alone is enough. God alone is enough. Whoever has God wants for nothing. Father Tom still in church? Is, you, is that you back there? I want to do this just for you because he's been calling me Billy Gibbons all night. <laughs> anyway, there, there you go. So I'm going to do something called a testimony or a witness. And you know what the word in Scripture is in Greek? The word for witness is martyrion where we get the English word martyr. So it's a little risk to tell your story, and I think we need to learn how to tell our stories to each other because we all get a little discouraged at times, don't we? To share your story about Jesus and what Jesus has done in your life is a risk because you never know. Maybe your family member or your friend, they may not accept it quite the way you would like them to accept it, or maybe they won't accept it for 10 years. So for 10 years, you might be rejected because you've shared your story. So it's always a bit of a risk, and the word martyr kind of ties into that. Later, when people gave their witness, their testimony, sometimes it cost them their life, 
And that's where we get the more normative English sense of the word martyr. So I'm going to be a martyr for you tonight. Now, I was raised in the Methodist church. I come from a long line of Methodist preachers and circuit riders. My granddaddy, James Cochran, was a singer who preached and started churches all up and down eastern Oklahoma and western Arkansas. That's what they did. And um, so we went mainly to the Methodist church. My daddy thought that was okay because he figured it was all predestined anyway. <laughs> now, we Catholics, we're a wild group because, see, we believe in 100% of both. <laughs> yeah, and the Presbyterians and the Methodists, they go... Well, how can you Catholics believe in 100% of predestination and free will? It doesn't make sense. And we Catholics have an answer. You know what it is? It's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, and the, the basis of our faith is sacrament, which means sacred mystery. It's based on the incarnation that God would become human, that he would be incarnate incarnate father's gonna invite us over to dinner uh, tomorrow night and uh, and and he says well are you like a vegetarian i said no man carne <laughs> yeah. jesus was not in pollo he was incarnate <laughs> he was in red meat right so so we believe in the mystery of the Incarnation and the mysteries, the sacraments, all flow out of that. And we believe that there are things about our faith that can be explained and should be because God gave us a head to think with, but He also gave us a, a cardia, a, a heart, see, that grasps things that are beyond explanation. And love is a mystery. It's explainable in part, and part of it is totally unexplainable. Have any married couples here? Okay. How many? Let's see. Any couples that are sitting together? Um, <laughs> how many of you been? How many of you been married more than twenty-five years? Okay. And and I could ask any one of you, and I'd say, "How'd you do that?" And you'd say, "It's a mystery." <laughs> Can I tell you a little joke that my grandmother really did tell me from her, her days of starting churches with granddaddy in eastern Oklahoma and western Arkansas? Back in those days, the tent revivalists were also making what was called the sawdust circuit. And they would go into these little towns with their tents. Back in those days, the tent revivalists were predominantly southern Baptists. Now, Pentecostalism hit the United States in 1904 and 1906. Where? Topeka, Kansas, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and Azusa Street out in Los Angeles. That's where the charismatic renewal, as we now think of it, kind of landed and started in the United States. But they didn't have mass media, so it took a while. So the Southern Baptists, who are kind of like excited, curseous, says, honey, I ought to go out there. So she goes, and boy, they're singing. They are stomping their feet, clapping their hands, raising the roof, having a blast. The preacher gets up to preach, and he not only shares doctrine, but he shares his faith. He doesn't just read off a script, he reads off his life. And faith has a way of stirring up faith, doesn't it? So people were excited, and they were, amen, hallelujah, you know. And then he gave an altar call, and most of the people in the church came forward that night or in the tent, 
and they prayed over folks, and then they sent them out. And as they sent them out, you know, they were shaking his hand, and they were coming up, and they were, oh, praise God, Pastor, thank you, hallelujah, God was with us. And the pastor would go, amen, brother, God was with us in the place tonight. And it was all kind of demonstrative like that. And my little Methodist grandmother came up to him. Now, Methodists, you know, you've got any Methodists here? Methodists are nothing if not polite. She says, well, you see, I am married to the local Methodist minister, and all of his brothers were Methodist ministers. And all of, you know, their family, everybody is Methodist ministers. Their daddy and all of his brothers, everybody was Methodist ministers. So, Pastor, I'm a Methodist. And you know what he's thinking? You can sleep in a garage. It don't make you a car. St. <laughs> Augustine said the same thing. He says, dear, you can be baptized, but that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. You've got to have that relationship with Jesus. That baptism leaves an indelible mark on your soul for your shame or for your glory, but you've got to make a decision. So that's what he's thinking about. So he says, do you mind if I ask you one more question? She says, oh, no, Pastor, that's lovely. We're having a wonderful interfaith dialogue. <laughs> and he says, well, sister, what if you were married to an idiot? And all of his brothers were idiots. And their daddy before them was an idiot. He says, sister, what would that make you? And she looked back up at him with all the politeness her little Methodist soul could muster. And she said, oh, pastor, that would make me a Southern Baptist. <laughs> we have to learn to laugh with each other and at each other a little bit. Because if we don't laugh, we're going to cry. See? See, the, some of the Southern Baptists don't know this yet, but there's going to be Catholics in heaven too. Right? Right? Yeah. And by the way, some of these really ultra-conservative Catholics that are kind of coming up, they don't know this, but there might be some Southern Baptists there too. God is going to look to our heart. St. John of the Cross says that God will only ask us one question, only one. How well have you loved? See, God is love. The Trinity is love. The Incarnation is love. The church is love. The sacraments are love. It's all about love. Truth guiding love. Love empowering truth. You've got to have both. You've got to have both. So, started playing the five-string banjo when I was eight years old. Any eight-year-olds here tonight? Sir, put your hand down. And... Yeah, there you go, right there. So at eight years old, I started playing. I had some great teachers who studied under national champions, and they played with people like Bill Keith and J.D. Crow and Earl Scruggs. He just died last year or so. Uh, I got a chance to hang out with Earl a bit in my life. Wonderful man. So started playing the banjo, started playing professionally when I was 10. Any 10-year-old kids here today? Raise up them hands. There you go. Yeah. I was going around and playing different places when I was 10 years old in a little folk group called the Quincords. When I was 12, a little band from Britain came to the United States. 
Yeah, you remember them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, all of the folk groups and bluegrass groups, we traded in our acoustic instruments for electric guitars, and we had moved up to Indiana as a family. So we went to the Indiana Battle of the Band State Fair contest. And uh, we had a little band that we put together. We were very fortunate. We got first place that year, and we got to make a little record contract. I mean a very little record contract because what it meant is we got to play in about three counties. They released it in three counties in Indiana. And we would go to the, like, the little the county fairgrounds, the Beatles, the Stones, the, you know, all these hermits, hermits, the Beach Boys. They all played at the Coliseum in Indianapolis, see, and we played like the Kokomo Rodeo Grounds. And all the little girls who couldn't get to the Coliseum came to hear us and they pretended like we were the Beatles. Which was just fine because we were pretending like we were the Beatles too. It was, it was a gas. They, they screamed and they grabbed us, you know, and there were like 50 of them. But anyway. So that went on for a while. And, and we made a couple of records. <clears throat> Ended up. Uh, in Chicago, and our record producer had heard of a particular kind of music kind of coming out of Southern California called country rock. And it was the Birds had put out a record called Sweetheart of the Rodeo. There was a new little group called Pogo. Later they changed their name to Poco. And another group called the Flying Burrito Brothers. I love that name. And, and uh, our producer says, well, you guys know country music and I played pedal steel and dobro and banjo and all this stuff. So he says, Johnny, you, you start playing that again and see what happens. Well, we ended up doing five records with Warner Brothers. Now, we were one of those kind of bands that was an almost famous band. Seriously. Guys like Joe Smith and, you know, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the other guy's name. He's dead now. <laughs> See how long fame lasts? Anyway, but they thought we were going to be the next big thing. My brother was an amazing communicator. So, uh, but it never happened. It never happened. What it meant was we played with everyone we thought we wanted to be like. And we played with just about everyone except, and I can name them real quick, never played with the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, Hendrix, never played with Dylan, never played with Joan Baez, and just about everybody else you can think of, we played with. So we got to know all the people that had everything that we thought we wanted. And what I discovered at a very early age was that all these people who had all the, the fame and the fortune and, you know, everything that went with it, when you get them backstage and go to parties with them and hang out, and if they would get just a little bit drunk, not a lot, I don't advocate kids getting drunk. But these guys would just a little bit let their guard down. They'd start to cry. One after the other. One after the other. And I will tell you this. I remember Janice. Janice, what a sweetheart. What a sweetheart. And, you know, we were playing with her when she was putting out Me and Bobby McGee. Remember that song? It was a big hit. And... Uh, we hung out with her at the sound check, and she was just, a, just like one of the guys. And we had to catch a Red Eye Express after our set and fly from Chicago. We were playing Ravinia, which is the orchestra shed, and go back out to Los Angeles the next day to play out there. So uh, uh, 
She says, oh, fellas. She says, I got this new band. And, and she was just a little sweetheart. But these people would cry and break down and talk about how they didn't have a good relationship with their family or their mom or their dad or, or, or God. One guy even complained because he, he missed his dog. <laughs> he was always on the road. Missed his doggy, you know. And so I said, well, there's got to be something else. So I began a search. I began a search because we were on the road about, well, we played about 300 concerts a year, and we did about two records a year in those spare days. So it was a grueling schedule. Back in those days on the buses, there were no, you know, there were no lounges and microwaves and fridges and TVs and stereos. It was just a bus. So we had a choice, you know, get stoned, sleep or read. I decided I wanted to read. So as we would go all over the country, I would go into bookstores and pick up all these different books. And I started reading about religion. Over in China, I'd read about <clears throat> Taoism and uh, Confucianism. From India, the subcontinent, I'd read about, you know, what we call Hinduism or Buddhism, Jainism. In the Middle East, I read about, of course, Judaism. Christianity, also read about the Muslim faith, the Sufi and the Sufi expression. And I was reading about the Greek philosophers at the same time, and also reading about the American Indian religions, Native Americans. So I was finding something good in everything I read. Every single tradition had something good and beautiful and wonderful in it. But I didn't have a relationship with God. Didn't have it. About the same time, I started to pull out that little Revised Standard Bible that my grandmother, remember her, had given me. And those red letters were jumping out. Jesus somehow was able to say so much more with so few words. It's a trick I'm still trying to learn. Every night I come home from the concert, and I get on my knees, and I pray, God, who are you? A he, a she, or an it? I don't care. I just want to know. I got no, I've got no agenda. I've got no dog in the hunt. I just want to know. And he didn't answer my prayers. For about a year and a half, I prayed, no answer. Do any of you have this problem? Yeah, see, he's waiting. He's waiting for us to be ready for what he wants to tell us. It's not that he doesn't know the answer. He's just waiting. There's a right time. So one night I had an experience, and the experience was of Jesus. It was clear. It was as real as, ma'am, as you sitting here with me. I knew it was Jesus Christ. And I gave my life to Christ that night. It was 1971. I didn't know any doctrine. I didn't go to church. I didn't understand the cross or the propitiation or sacraments or anything. I just knew that when I prayed, God, who are you? Jesus answered that prayer. Wow. And I knew I was loved. I knew He forgave me my sins. In my, in my young life, my sins were beginning to stack up. Can anybody say rock and roll? <laughs> and he forgave me then and there. Whew. 
Have any of you ever sinned? <laughs> Father Tom? Yeah. Let's see the hands, buddy. Oh, there he is, yeah. He not only raised his hand, he raised all his fingers. He went like that. <laughs> how many of you have ever been forgiven? Wow, how many thought it felt good? Oh, yeah. Well, that's what happened to me. So I got involved in the early days of the Jesus movement. You remember the Jesus movement? Jesus was on the cover of Time magazine. I always wonder where they got his photo. <laughs> and it was sweeping the country, late 60s, early 70s. And I got involved then, after getting out of secular music, I got involved in the early days of what we called the Jesus movement, and we just made Jesus music. It wasn't called Christian contemporary music. Especially wasn't called the Christian contemporary music industry. <laughs> it was a bunch of ex-hippies traveling around the country playing coffee houses and Christian colleges and churches and anywhere that would, would hear us. We'd go in and play. And we had a blast. But what happened, I did a couple of records for a little company called Sparrow. It was started by Billy Ray Hearn, who was the A&R director up in Waco, Waco, Texas. And, uh, sorry. And are you guys with me? Are we all right? <laughs> you all with me over here? Yeah, are you all okay? You can hear? You can hear? How about you? Can you hear? All right. You are alive? You're alive? Check. Do a little check. Make sure you're still here. Some of you have more to pinch than others. <laughs> okay. So I did a little record for Sparrow. It was, back then there were five artists and 14 employees in Canoga Park, California. Today it's the biggest Christian record company in the world. And I, here's the deal. We're almost winding down here. I would come over to your church, and you would catch now, follow this, three, three things. You would be good people, you'd have the Spirit of God, and you'd go to the Bible to try to figure out how do we follow Jesus and how do we do that together. And I would do my ministry, and we'd get along really good, and then you'd take me to the airplane or wherever, and I'd, I'd go over to your church the next day or the next couple of days. Same thing. Follow me. Good people, Spirit of God, go to the Bible to try to figure out how do we follow Jesus. And I get along really good with you too. And I thought, groovy. But then came the big bopper where you'd say, well, where were you last night? I'd say, well, I was over at their church. And you'd say, you were? Well, we don't like them. We don't fellowship with them because they believe this and this and this. And I went, well, that's sad because Jesus had healed my heart. And then the next time I'd come over to your church and play, I'd say, we get along really good. And I'd say, you know, after I was at your place, I was at their place, and they don't like you. <laughs> and you would say, well, that's okay. We don't like them either. And I began to experience the divided nature of Christendom. And it broke my heart. Because when Jesus came into my life, He healed my heart. 
the guys in the band, they said, what happened to John Michael? He's a nice guy all of a sudden. I got news for you. Musicians can be terribly egotistical. See, so Jesus changed me a little bit, and it was good. So I said, what's missing? What are we missing? We've all got, we're all good folks. We've all got the Spirit of God, and we all go to the Bible to try to figure out how to follow Jesus and do it together. What are we missing? And I stumbled on at 24 years old onto something that pretty simple, and that was the Bible came out of the early church. Think of it. Jesus didn't write a book. He was the Logos, the Word incarnate. He gathered people and they lived under the anointing of the Spirit and He appointed some people to lead them called what now we call bishops, episcopus, and when they had problems, they began to write books and they began to collect them. So the Bible came out of the experience of the early church. So it struck me, if there's a debatable passage of Scripture dividing us guys from us guys, let's go back to the early church from which the Scriptures came and let's see if we can't find at least a substantial agreement as to what this passage that's dividing us now meant. And then let's apply that in the Spirit to our situation today in a developed way. That was my big plan. I was utterly shocked. Not part of my plan. Not part of my agenda. That when I did that, I discovered that the early church was substantially, it was Catholic. Now, it was a primitive expression of the church, but it was there. See? Think about it. Apostolic succession. A special role of leadership for the Bishop of Rome. The sacraments, especially a great love for the Eucharist, which they celebrated every Sunday. The communion of saints, a great love for Mary. Now, you need to understand this, folks. I didn't want to be a Catholic. <laughs> I wasn't looking to be a Catholic. I didn't even like Catholics. Still working on that one. <laughs> and the Lord gave me a word. And the word was, He says, John Michael, I want you to become a Catholic. She is my first church. I love her most dearly. She has been sick and nearly died at times, but I am going to heal her and I am going to raise her up to new life again and I want you to be a part of her. That was in 1978. I sought out a Franciscan priest, moved into a hermitage in the woods, and I became a Catholic. Now why do I share that with you tonight? <clears throat> I share that with you because I think that word is not just for me in 1978. I think it's for us today in 2013. The church is His first church. He loves us most dearly. We've been sick and nearly died, but He's going to heal us and raise us to new life again, and He wants us to be a part of her. Amen? amen. Oh, come on, give me an amen. There you go. See, <clears throat> it's not enough 
to do the right thing, which is correct doctrine, correct ecclesiology, correct sacraments. You have to do the... This is Thomas Aquinas. You have to do the right thing rightly. What's rightly? It's all about Jesus. See? It's all about Jesus. Now here's a trick. Here's a trick. There have been some tough times in the church. The sex scandals in the church, this is tough. Probably the biggest scandal to rock the church since we've gone through since the Reformation. But we're going to make it. Here's how. Here's how. Popes, they come and they go. We have had saints and we have had stinkers. Can anybody say Borgia? Right? Bishops, they come and they go. We have had some saints. We've had some terrible sinners. Father Tom, I'm sorry to tell you this. Parish priests, they come and they go. We have saints. We have sinners. Praise God, even the parish council, the pastoral council, the members on that council, they come and they go. Guess who does not come and go in our life? Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Say it with me. Yesterday, today, and forever. Say it again. Yesterday, today, and forever. See, if we keep our eyes on Christ, He will give us what we need to face any challenge. It's like when Peter got out of the boat to do something miraculous, to walk on water. And he did all right for a while, but he got his eyes off of Jesus and on to the storm. And he began to sink. See, there are all kinds of storms in our world today. There are storms economically, politically. There are storms in the church. They're not going to stop because there are people there. If you look at the problems in other people's lives, in Father Tom's life, in my life, probably in Pope Francis's life, I bet you can find something there. He's a guy. If you see that, you're going to sink. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can walk on water. Now, we are moving into a time where our culture is shifting, and it's shifting from a Judeo-Christian base to a secular, humanist, moral base. It's happened in our lifetime, and it has happened. And you and I, brothers and sisters, we might be, and we are being, marginalized. The Judeo-Christian moral view is no longer 
the majority worldview in our country. So we're being marginalized. We're being demonized. Often just for believing what we believe, we're called hate mongers. God help us, and I pray it doesn't happen, but we could even be criminalized. It's happened before. It's happening now in other parts of the world. But here's the deal. During the Roman Empire, when the church was persecuted for 200 years, where as Christians we were accused, this was the crime, crimes against humanity. That was the crime for being a Christian. And by the way, <laughs> we started the women's rights movement. We had women saints. Suddenly women were no longer just objects for procreation or pleasure. The normal pattern was you had a wife, and for pleasure, when she was no longer giving you pleasure, you go to a male or a female prostitute. When your wife has too many girl babies, you can make some good business arrangements and strategic alliances in your business with other families, do a few of them, but after there's too many, you don't know what to do with them. So you sell them into prostitution at age 12. Or you make your wife have an abortion. And in those days, you only survived one or two. It was a gruesome thing. It's gruesome now. It was even worse then. No, it wasn't sterile. It was awful. So Christians came along. <clears throat> we had Mary as a saint. And, get this, we opposed abortion. And we opposed active homosexuality. And we were accused of crimes against humanity. For 200 years, we were persecuted. And during those 200 years, the church grew, get this, by 40% a decade. Because the church grows from the seed of the blood of the martyrs. <clears throat> so by the time the Edict of Milan came along and first the church was tolerated and then endorsed and then became the religion of the Roman Empire, they were just stating the obvious. Because guess what? By then, most of the people in the Roman Empire had already become Christian. Forty percent a decade. So don't let the storms frighten you. Do not let the storms frighten you. If you are marginalized, don't be afraid. If you are demonized, don't be afraid. If you are criminalized, don't be afraid. Because it's precisely in these kinds of times that the church begins to find her feet again. And we are raised up, even in the midst of persecution, we are raised up to a life that, frankly, is so fervent, so on fire, so filled with love that it converts the entire world. Amen? Amen? So keep your eyes on Jesus. The same. Do it again. Yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. That's my testimony. <laughs> Thank you.
I'm feeling some of that old Methodist blood coming up. Hmm. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. begin to recognize that Mary held a special place as the mother, the model of all believers everywhere because she dared to believe what the world would say is unbelievable, <clears throat> that she would be overshadowed by the Spirit, that she would conceive and give birth to a son who would be the savior of the entire human race and there would be no human father at all. This is medically impossible. Can't be done. I don't think she understood it. But she believed it. I'm going to ask you to sing this chorus with me. I'm going to ask you to dare to believe the unbelievable in your life, in our world, in our time. That love can conquer hatred. That forgiveness can conquer judgment that justice can conquer vengeance, that meekness can conquer arrogance and pride. Dare to believe these things. If we will do this, Jesus will be born into our midst. Every moment we make this act of faith. Sing holy.
surrender it all to Jesus. I surrender it all to God's will. I surrender it all for the kingdom of God. I surrender my life, my all. Your grace and your love are wealth enough for me. all before the conclusion let's kneel and as we kneel let's bring low anything that might be trying to rise up between us and a full relationship with Jesus any doubt any anger any agenda of your own that might not be God's agenda your old self, as St. Paul calls it, trying to rise up. He says you have to bring the old self to the cross. Let it die through the cross of Christ so that you and I can become the men and the women that Jesus created us to be. So surrender and experience the victory of Jesus. I surrender it all to Jesus. I surrender it all to God's will. I surrender it all for the kingdom of God. I surrender my life, my all. 
You have been listening to a two-episode series, Light of the World, featuring John Michael Talbot. If you'd like to listen to this episode and other great episodes, go to IgniteRadioLive.com. God bless you. 